Hello and welcome to the Jellyfish Current, a marketing and advertising podcast brought to you by Jellyfish, a new kind of marketing performance company. I'm your host, Shamsul Chowdhury, VP of Paid Social at Jellyfish. We're going to talk about all things related to marketing in a digital world with some of the best minds in the business with the aim of giving you and the company you work for a platform to perform. In our very first episode, we're going to be talking about omni-channel content strategies and their impact. I'm joined today by two great minds on this topic, Natalie Hapgood, Senior Director of Brand Strategy at Jellyfish, and Chris Krishak, Content Director at Jellyfish. Welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Shamsul. Thanks for having us. Uh, You're both particularly poised to talk about omnichannel content because that's your area of expertise. Uh, You live and breathe it day to day. Uh, We know that content that's built for purpose outperforms one-size-fits-all content. So we want to talk about you know, why that is and, and how it comes about. But before we dive into today's discussion, I'd love to give uh, both of you a forum to introduce yourselves and what you do and what your areas of focus are, starting with you, Natalie. Um, thanks. So yeah, my background is in actually lifestyle and entertainment marketing. And so I think that puts me in a unique position to really challenge our clients to think about their brand or their service in the context of how it fits into consumers' lives. And one of my passions is content. So it's how do we tell that story? And then looking at all the different places that content can go. So I'm excited to have the chat with you today. Uh, hi, my name is Chris uh, Krishak. I'm based in Berlin, Germany. And uh, my background is mainly in editorial and SEO. So before joining Jellyfish, I worked in the editorial departments of various digital publishers, uh, mostly in the uh, entertainment sector. So think things like movies, cinema, um, video games and consumer tech, such as smart TVs, virtual reality, that kind of stuff. And here at Jellyfish, my area of responsibility is mainly devising data-driven content strategies. And also I do a lot of um, SEO tasks still. So things like your bread and butter, um, keyword research, stuff like that. And I also do a lot of analytics and reporting uh, for our content teams. So we might pick your brain, Chris, on how we can get our podcast to rank highly with some of uh, that SEO know-how. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. Cool. So thank you both for those intros. Uh, let's set the table by defining what omnichannel content and strategy are. Uh, Chris, you want to you know, kind of walk us through how you would define what, what that means? Yeah, sure. So I would say that what sets um, omnichannel marketing or omni-platform marketing, if you will, uh, apart from sort of more traditional forms of uh, marketing is that it's trying to be as seamless or as unified as possible. So that means that rather than targeting the same audience with the same message across multiple channels, you would want to have your entire marketing set up so that it's very cohesive and as consistent as possible for um, a variety of different audience segments um, rather than for one specific um, target audience in mind. Um, And basically, or um, most likely across the entire uh, customer journey. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's sort of moving away from this vision of using the platforms as just a distribution channel. So we need a video for YouTube or we need you know, a great photo or an image for Instagram, but rather looking at the behavior of the consumers across these channels and then really understanding why they might go to each channel and, or platform and what they're looking for and then catering the content to that specific thing. So I think it's very important for brands to have a look at the consumer's uses and behaviors to help them then define 
what their um, omni-channel or omni-platform um, positioning would be. So what goes into bringing it to life? So you guys are talking about the content and the importance of it. And, and how does that process go from start to finish? Well, Chris and I have actually worked on a bunch of these kinds of projects. So we can t- we can sort of tell you, I feel like we have a pretty good system of how we awesome. do things now. But, <laughs> um, you know, we start with with really trying to understand the, the client's question, the challenge that they need to solve. And sometimes, um, you know, we'll brainstorm with the client of like the best way to really hone in on what it is they're trying to solve. Once we're clear on what our objective is, then there's just really this process of doing the research up front. And there's many ways we can tap into that. So sometimes brands have their own research or their own really strong brand proposition. And they're very clear on who they are and how they're positioned. Sometimes they're not as strong and they'd like they they'd need some help with that. So then we'll tap into our market intelligence team, our data analytics team. We have a media strategy team, of course, Chris's capabilities, and then you know multiple other capabilities depending on what the ask is. And we start really trying to find those things that connect what the business stands for and what the brand stands for, what the consumer is really interested in, and how that sort of fits within the industry or against competitors. And it's sort of this layering approach of those things to find out these, these sort of key ideas that really pop. And in the terms of content, those often then become our content pillars, which sort of establish where we actually have the right to speak, what things we can talk about now that we know we're speaking directly to the consumers, not to just tell your story, but to make sure you're connecting with the audience on their propositions and the things that they're interested in finding out. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think in the end, it comes down to trying to speak uh, sort of play to the strengths of the individual um, marketing channels that you have available so that you can deliver a more effective and more coher- coherent um, brand pr- proposition. And this way um, you can also reach uh, the target buyers at the right time, which increases the chance of converting them into, into a lead. And so, for example, Natalie and I, we worked on uh, a client in the events marketing industry, for example, And let's say you want to increase the attendance for your online event, for example. And uh, the traditional way of going about this would be to, uh, I don't know, share upcoming class information uh, on your website and on social media, your email letter and all that stuff. And I think Omnichannel differentiates itself from from this traditional approach that it still does the same thing. However, it tries to uh, meet people at different stages of their customer journey uh, in multiple locations online or with a tailored messaging rather than with one, uh, let's say, message that suits them all. So instead of sharing the same message everywhere, uh, you use your marketing channels to guide people through a journey to your business. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, myself being a paid social practi- practitioner, we often get existing assets, likely a TV ad, and we know that it doesn't perform best because it's not suited for the platform. How do you guys take an existing asset? So, for example, if you get a TV commercial and the client's telling you to put this across all the different channels, all the different platforms, you know, how do you take that asset and say, you know what, this is not going to work on this, but we can tailor it to, to fit on social or to fit on YouTube? What's the, the thought process behind that? You kind of have to start before that step even happens. You know, you have to be very clear on like what it is you're making and then where it's going to go. And you have to sort of sort of look down the road to see all the potential opportunities. So if you are making a a commercial for TV, you have to assume that at some point there's going to be some sort of digital 
um, need. I, I would hope so in this day and age. <laughs> exactly. So you should be planning. So that should be planned. And then if it's, you know, the digital need is like a, an obvious one, but then, you know, knowing which channels you want to go to, it also lends a lot to the production. So when you get to the point where you're actually physically making it, there's a list of things that the production team is going to need to know and your creatives need to know. So that forethought is like really important. So taking an existing asset, while it is something that we can do and we've done well, I think, at Jellyfish, having the step before that, the ideating, before you get to the distribution or Mm -hmm. the publishing is super important, actually. No, 100%. So there's clearly a lot of work that goes behind it. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the data that goes into it. You know, what are the benefits to both the consumer and the brand when you build you know, channel-specific content versus a one-size-fits-all? Does it allow for more personalization? Like, what are the benefits? I mean, I think that it's really looking at the behavior. So once you've understood, you know, how consumers are interacting with your product and or service and then how, like, what are, their, what are the steps in them being able to research it to get more information? Are they looking for reviews? So once you understand that customer journey, then you start to have more data points and more sort of dots that you can connect between the different platforms. So you look at behavior rather than just the platform. So rather than thinking of, we need a video for YouTube, you sort of think about, we need a how-to video for YouTube. So you get sort of more specific because you've seen already the data will show you, this is just an example, that people will go to YouTube because they want to see how something is made or how something is used. Same for, you know, if you have an art editorial on your website, you sort of want to position that as maybe, you know, um, either conversion kind of content. So it's going to be different the way you write it. And you'll know that as, as you sort of start to understand how people will search, they'll come up with a product, they'll get directed to your site, you know, what step that is in their journey and then making content specifically for that. Yeah, right. I totally agree. I, I think I would add that um, before thinking about the potential benefits of omnichannel marketing, um, I think you could also argue that it's not longer only a nice to have, but pretty much a requirement these days because basically modern customers expect a, a, a seamless of uh, as possible a channel uh, they expect 20 24 7 uh, customer service and personalized communication all that stuff so i guess um it's no longer just uh nice to have omni-channel marketing it's it's really a, a tool set for uh, increasing your brand recognition and the the overall customer experience and in turn, hopefully increasing the business revenue. And I think it's also important to note, you don't have to be everywhere. You know, you have to be on the key platforms that you know your target audience is on, and you have to be on the ones that make sense for your brand. And if they don't make sense for your brand, but you feel you need to be on there, there's different ways to do it. Like I've worked with brands before that they don't feel like they have their own really bespoke content for Instagram. They have a page. It's very just sort of product focused, but they really lean into influencers to tell the story. And that's a different kinds of kind of strategy. And that's, again, something that you could pick up when you've done your research up front. So I think layering those things is this pressure to, to not have to just be everywhere, which I think then gets you out of that one thing should fit everything kind of mentality. That, that, that's a really interesting point you bring up regarding influencers. Do, do you feel like that's good for brands to sort of lean on the influencers clout to have, have their brand voice be out there? Or is that something they should really take ownership of just in case you know influencer has something that pops up from 10 years ago and it's like oh no this influencer's tied with this brand you know how should brands be thinking about that in, in today's society 
I mean, it is tricky. I think you have to do your research on who you want to partner with. And I think the best sort of relationship with the influencer is really a partnership. So it's not just the brand telling an influencer what to do. It's not an influencer just taking it and running with it. If there's a good communication and collaboration and you vetted each other really well, then I think it can work. We talked about omni strategy or omni meaning being everywhere. And you mentioned, Natalie, you don't have to be everywhere. So to your point, it's like that there are instances where clients or advertisers see, oh, TikTok is trending or this new platform and we want to be there. Like, how do you kind of get them off the, the edge and say, you know what, we probably don't have to be there because of X, Y, and Z reasons? Or what's the thought process that goes into that? Well, for me, I think I'd look at the behavior of the consumer. If the consumer, let's take TikTok, for example, because this is coming up a lot um, recently with multiple brands, should they or shouldn't they? And I think that if you if your if your target audience is demonstrating they're spending a lot of time on TikTok, then it's the behavior again, like why? Like what are they getting from it? And if you can authentically tell your story on a platform like TikTok, then you could give it a shot. You could also work with influencers there. I think you got to also look at the kind of time restraints, the budget, the production, because I'd rather not do it at all than like do it badly, right, of course. No, of course. You know, so so just being really thoughtful that you know, TikTok or any sort of short form video seems like well, it's only five seconds. You know, that that's got to be easy to produce. To produce it well actually <laughs> takes a lot of people, it takes a lot of thought, it takes scripting, even if it's a five second thing or ten second thing. It takes great copywriting, it takes great imagery. So I think just being thoughtful um, about where you want to go, and if you aren't sure, I would just wait. And I would wait to see the data and I would wait to see how existing products that you know on platforms you need to be on roll out and then take your time. It's a step-by-step process until you can kind of get the data in, you can see where you are. And then also data and reporting is another thing, which I think we'll talk to a little bit later of like, how do you layer all those insights to actually get mm-hmm. an accurate view of what you should be doing and where you should be? Yeah, I think to the point you just made is spot on. Like I, I would argue that the shorter the video, it's probably harder to make, right? Because it's like you have to be really concise, get your message across in that five, six second, whatever it is. And I think there's a, f- a famous saying, right? I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time kind of thing. It's <laughs> like like you, to be concise is an art form. So uh, right. th- there is that notion, right? Advertisers think, oh, it's only a five second video. How long can it possibly take? Like well, It takes more than five seconds to make. So. Yeah, it takes a lot of thought. <laughs> Exactly. The output might be five seconds, but the input is, is a lot more than that. So. Right. So in, in terms of just like the, going back to the omni-channel, right, it's, you know, what do you, what do you tell brands who are wrestling with this journey of, of how to proceed, right? Because oftentimes we see brands, they've got that one video asset, like, you know, I'll go back to the TV asset, right? It's, it's, it's kind of that asset they have and they say, okay, cool. We want this seated everywhere. Um, and obviously you made a good point like that, the, the initial conversation should be, no, let's figure out where it should live and what the content strategy should be. How do you get them out of their comfort zone where, you know, their comfort zone is, Hey, we're going to be on TV and, and, and YouTube, right? Those are checks one and two. Everything else is an afterthought. How do you get them to come out of that shell? I usually challenge them to think about the consumer journey. It's like, why are they going to YouTube? Like, what are they trying to get out of it? So I think. What I, what I have done with clients as well is they've, they, they'll come to me and they'll ask for something specific. We want, let's say, content for our website. Great, we can do that. We know we'll do the brand proposition. We'll figure out the content pillars. We know what we can talk about. But then as an added layer to that, and I think this is where strategists can be really helpful, 
is thinking about where are they coming to your website from? Like, what does that lead into your website? And then where are they going out of? Or where are they going out to? And then sometimes I'll just put the seed for them to think about are those sort of steps one through three thought about rather than just creating which something that could be the middle step, like a step two. So I've done it before with clients where, you know, they wanted content for the website and I'll say, okay, this is how I would construct it. And I'll put in sort of just a light sort of thought starter about what is your brand awareness? What, what kind of things you could be doing? And I'll list some sort of tactics and then I'll show them how that would funnel through to the website. And then we, that's the work we'll do. We'll focus on the website. We know how to do that. We know how to do that well. And then I'll say, okay, and the tail end would be, and then I'll sort of give some sort of thought starters around that. So we want our content to succeed and we know that we can make it, we can make it well. We know how to do that. But we, but, but, but beyond just the creation of the, of the, of the work, we really want the client to think about all the things that surround it that can make it successful, which is why if they don't have an SEO strategy, that's really important. If you're putting content on a website, the, uh, the UX is important, actually. Very technical stuff that can actually mm-hmm. really boost, boost your, um, your views or whatever your goals are on the website. It's the same for videos, uh, same for social, you know, understanding why, why people want to go to a, p- a certain piece of content, what leads them there and what takes them out of it can help you there, then sort of have a more fully formed picture of what you're trying to do. Yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, when it really comes down to it, um, it can be quite overwhelming uh, when when starting out with devising an, an omni-channel um, marketing strategy. But I think what you can actually do to maybe improve or um, make it easier for yourself is uh, thinking about a very specific pain point that your uh, customer has uh, along his journey or her journey and how can you actually come up with content that is supportive of that, how, that, that would solve um, this pain point for them. And I think once you get down to this, it's, it's pretty simple, really. I think that many companies um, even fail at this first step where it's just basically coming down to um, consistently publishing content and mm-hmm. posting something uh, sometimes somewhere and just really not being afraid of making mistakes And uh, because I think in the end, um, failure is part of this learning process. Uh, good quali- content quality only comes with knowledge and experience. You need to test a lot, a lot of things out on different uh, channels. And uh, like I said, I think uh, consistency uh, is key. And once, once you have established that, um, I, I guess it's just a matter of, of um, maximizing your output across all these different uh, platforms that you have um, at your disposal and um, trying to capture as much reach as possible without uh, actually um, uh, jeopardizing content quality, I would say. So basically just master one platform after another. I I love the bit about like understanding the consumer needs. I think that often gets overlooked. And Natalie, you you mentioned earlier about like if someone's going for how-to content, YouTube naturally seems like the place to go. And, you know, just that addressing what the, what the consumer is looking for and building content that that sort of tells them hey we know you're interested in this and here's that bit of that bit of content across our website youtube any other social platform i think uh, that, that's a really smart way to approach it and i think there's there's a miss there sometimes where brands to your point just want to create content without really understanding what the consumer is looking for so yeah and that's part of the workflow that we'll do for them is asking them for the brand book and you know what sort of stuff they have established already and then 
it's persona work. So it's like, what are the pain points, the challenges, the needs? And then you come up with the opportunities, also that differentiating factor. How are you different than X competitor? And sort of trying to really nail that piece of it. And that then lends itself as well to your tone of voice, you know, the kind of brand guidelines and the visual come to life of the of the brand yeah they, they say it takes a village to raise a child i'm getting the, the 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 thought that it takes a village to sort of build a piece of content as well natalie you talked about you know data and you know copywriters and you know production there, there, how many people are really involved in producing one piece of content well i don't want to scare people away like okay now i need this like <laughs> massive team like you have very right. creative people who have lots of skills who are actually right. able to do they're able to editor do editorial and copywriting and stuff so you do have mm -hmm. these sort of swiss army knives of kind of you know creative people and yeah. some smaller brands can do it very successfully but i would say what their differentiator is is just that prep prep up front so sort of being very clear about what you're going to say where you're going to say it and then you know have those when you do do a shoot day um, and I'm sure this is something you can get into when you guys have creatives and production um, on the podcast, how you get the most out of your day and how you can mm. sort of plan ahead. So um, it, it can be as big or small as you want, depending on multiple factors. But I don't want to scare away brands thinking that, you know, it has to be this like 40, 50 person project. Sometimes right. it is and it can be. Right. 40, 50 is probably an exaggeration, maybe, you know, 10 to 15 or so. But it can also be a small team of people who just have a lot of capabilities and skills and can can make really great content too. What's the largest team you guys had to work with to produce a piece of content? I think anything that when you're on set for a, a big production for a day, I think, I mean, that's sort of a, how big is a, I don't know. <laughs> There's no real answer to that. It can be as big as small. You know, if you're shooting a commercial, a TV commercial for Nike, Right. Or uh, I used to make music videos in my formal life. So there, there could be sometimes hundreds of people involved, oh, wow. uh, especially if there's FX or after, you know, after production stuff. Um, but I'd say for, for most of our content, it could be a team of four or five people. Like you could do it that way. Uh, and then if it's a larger scope and there's more different capabilities, so you need video and you need social specifics and you need mm -hmm. uh, editorial, then, you know, you want people who, uh, can actually speak to each of those specialties. And it doesn't mean that you need to have everyone on 24-7 on all of the projects. They, right. You know, people can come in and out as you need them to do stuff for you. What would you say is like a good shelf life for a piece of content, whether, you know, it's, it's a video or it's on a website? Like, what would you want? Obviously, we'd want something to live more than one day, right? We'd want to have some sort of longevity to a piece of content. Yeah, I think there's a difference between the, the paid and organic approach. Like an organic approach, like we always have content that's evergreen. Mm. But the trick to keeping it evergreen is to actually go back and update. So you have these buckets of things where you want to talk about maybe things that are trending that you, you know, that makes sense for you to talk about. The things that are evergreen, so things, you know, people come back for over and over. But even the evergreen sort of sentiment can change over time. I think Chris can also speak to sort of how he sees search trends changing, mm -hmm. even on things that you think you know. And so going back to update older pieces of content is also very important. And then you always want to leave room for things that are unexpected and sort of save um, thought and time for um, things that just sort of pop up that you want to want to comment on. 
Yeah, I also think it um, mostly depends on the marketing channel that, that we talk about. So you brought up this uh, example of SEO and I think you could um, define this as sort of a pull marketing channel in, in, in that people are looking for solutions and products uh, on their own volition. And so essentially you, you can glean from, from data points such as uh, the search volume, um, what, what are the most important topics to cover and how they are trending over time. Whereas in, in, the, in the example of, let's say, something like social media, we are basically faced with a, a never-ending content feed, if you will. And it becomes much harder to actually be, to be seen in the first place. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes more of a matter of, of analyzing what are the trending content formats right now for your target audience and uh, what, what type of content do they engage with the most uh, on, on what platforms and why. So, yeah, uh, I think essentially um, a lot of, of, of that comes down to looking at um, what your customers are doing online. Chris, do you see a difference between SEO, SEM, marketing, and then SEO as it relates to social? Oh, that's actually an interesting question. I think, uh, so one of these, um, let's say, one of my, my, my pet peeves, if you will, um, when it comes to SEO is always trying to decipher uh, the user intent. Uh, so what is it that uh, a person wants to accomplish when they, when they consult a search engine? So are they looking for information? Uh, do they need instructions? Uh, is there a particular action that they need to accomplish? And I think this, this um, concept of user intent also translates well to uh, a thing like social media. I guess it comes down to um, understanding the user um, and how they interact with these platforms and what they want to get out of them. Mm-hmm. Is it as easy to search for those keywords when you're looking for a social platform versus the traditional search engine like a Google or, a, or an editorial site? I think it becomes more difficult to actually get to this uh, to this data. So, for one example, I, I tend to bring up is uh, YouTube. So, even though there there are certain tools that could provide you with, say, keywords, because essentially, and uh, YouTube is also an, a search engine in its own right. The the, the one um, differentiator, if that's a word, with with let's say traditional the, the traditional Google search engine is that. Most of this um, data is not publicly available, so you need to rely on on third-party tools to to get a good um, yeah um, to get a good understanding of of um, the the actual demand for certain keywords. And most importantly, I think um, social media and I, I would um, um, regard YouTube as a social media platform as well is is very much dependent on uh, user interaction and uh, the the community behind it so relying on on things like um uh, keywords alone is probably not going to cut it so you would actually think yeah so you would need to think about other ways of 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 interacting more directly uh, with with your community i think that's a really good point and i think something especially youtube because um you know i've done a lot of content for youtube in the past is it's not just about you know, you figured out the message, you know, it should go on YouTube and then you publish it and jo- the job's not over at that point. Right. Because now there's many things that can fire up that algorithm that you want to make sure you have people liking and engaging in with it, especially in, within the first 30 minutes to an hour of the content going live. If it's an artist on the channel or a brand, you want some interaction within the channel. You want to make sure you have it out to PR. So you're getting picked up on PR all over the place, wherever, you know, the relevant outlets are. 
You want to make sure that you have like artists or whoever supporters are publishing as well. So you can really try to galvanize that. And once you sort of hit that algorithm, like, oh, something's happening here, then you can try to ride, ride that wave. And that also mm -hmm. goes to looking at the data of when are you actually YouTube specifically, when do you get your most traffic on YouTube? And then I would say, don't publish at the peak of the traffic, publish just before the peak of your traffic so that you can sort of get that swell. Now you have the engagement, plus you have organic views coming in at a time that you've recognized uh, to try to really like, sort of push that wave even further. It seems like the the world of content marketing is constantly changing, whether it's new platforms, new content types. What, what do you think is most important for brands and content marketers to be aware of today as they're producing a piece of content? I'd say test and learn. Like, don't be afraid to try new platforms. Um, and, you know, you could do it as a white label account just to try things and see see how things work see what kind of content people are publishing, especially new platforms. If you can build relationships with newer platforms at the get-go, mm -hmm. it will give you some cred and some relationship building for when you need other things. I think that's something that we do really well. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know, Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think um, one of these uh, trends, these larger trends that we see happening across uh, various platforms is Uh, how do you say that, like the convergence of mediums. So thinking about things like very lengthy YouTube ads that feel more like a video asset, uh, essay rather than an actual ad. And uh, I myself repeatedly uh, are caught in watching them until the end because I'm <laughs> generally intrigued. And I think um, this, this whole idea of um, storytelling across different mediums, not really thinking in, the, in, in, in silos. So you have the one... A YouTube um, algorithm and then you have the Google algorithm and they are all different, which of course is true um, in, in certain respects. But what we also uh, are experiencing now is this, yeah, as I said, like, like a convergence of, of uh, mediums and an integrated approach to um, uh, content production as well. So it's no longer living only on the blog or it only gets um, translated into a social post, but we also have like web and app integrations, for example, Mm -hmm. and uh, ways of communicating with your customers uh, on the app in order to bring them closer to, to your business, for example, or just maybe just providing them with additional um, guidance. So I think that that's also uh, some trends that are, that are happening right now. Yeah, I'd agree. I think one of the things we do as well is um, we call it content atomization, which is you take a longer piece of content. It works well for editorial And you take out little snippets that you might want to put on different channels. But again, you, you got to pull out a relevant piece that fits for whatever that channel is and what you know people go to that platform for. Mm -hmm. uh, can work for email as well. And again, it's, um, you know, it's just like, what's the hook in the article or in the longer form that then can be used other places too? So it's not to say you couldn't reuse content across different platforms, but being thoughtful about what piece of this content that we've made fits there for that purpose. We actually do that with this podcast. We take snippets of the podcast and we do little teasers around it. So. <laughs> There we go. There we go. We, we definitely uh, try out our own dog food. Um, last question I had for you guys is, what would you say is a piece of content that you've seen and you said, wow, this is awesome. This is what great content looks like. Um, I think there's so many different um, great examples. So personally, I'm, I'm very much into... Um, The, the power of AI these days. So I, I just discovered this um, awesome 
um, AI called Midjourney. You might have heard of it. It's basically um, it, it creates illustrations um, oh, ba based yeah. on text or image prompts, and I yeah. find that very fascinating. <laughs> How, and and uh, like even ver very well established uh, publishers um, such as the Atlantic, for example, are actually using um, Midjourney um, illustrations. Um, like commercially, and I find that very interesting. I think, like in the long run, it will probably not replace uh, human re creativity because that would mean that people like ourselves would lose our jobs. <laughs> so let's hope that's not going to happen. <laughs> But I think it it shows us that um, how how technology can actually help in in scaling up the overall content production process uh, quite immensely. And I think that we're still only scratching the surface of of what will be possible in the future. So yeah, that's one example. It's a good <laughs> call. Out. They're, they're, they're pretty cool. I've seen a couple of those. I think for me, it's the content that really is, um, you know, my background is lifestyle and entertainment. I've worked in music for a lot of years. And I think the content that we're able to do at Jellyfish in that um, entertainment space, we, we worked with Netflix. Um, you know, our team actually won an Emmy for the work that they did on that. But I, I love when brands create something that's a snippet of like a much longer, deeper piece of content that intrigues you enough to get you hooked to then go mm -hmm. and see the thing. Mm -hmm. And I think also it doesn't negate brands that are in finance or even pharma from making emotive content. So what is the thing that they're selling that people are really going to connect with? And that's, I feel like what I'm good at is finding that sort of sweet spot of, well, it's just a over-the-counter medication. Okay, but then you sort of look at like, why do you need that con Why do you need that product? And then speaking to that pain point, because I think it's been shown that emotive marketing is a way to get people really invested in your brand because mm -hmm. you're solving a problem for them. So anytime I see sort of emotive things, I mean, Nike, of course, does it amazingly well, but we've done it ourselves with some of the brands that we've worked on. Um, my perspective is lifestyle and entertainment, but again, it doesn't, it doesn't just need to be in those spaces where the emotion is obvious. You have to find that emotion and tell that story. Cool. Agree 100%. Uh, from myself and Jellyfish, thank you so much, Natalie and Chris, for joining us today, uh, talking us through the importance of omnichannel content strategy. Uh, my name is Shamsul Chowdhury, speaking from New York City. Uh, be sure to tune in to our next episode where we'll discuss the optimization O's, uh, the importance of SEO and ASO with client partner Zosam and Jellyfish Client Solutions Officer of Earned Media, Nick Fetaplace. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform you use to stay updated with the latest episodes. Uh, and do leave a review, review if you feel so inclined. Uh, if you have any questions or feedback about the show, send us an email at thecurrent at jellyfish.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Jellyfish Current is produced by the editorial and production teams at Jellyfish. If you want to learn more about our organization, please visit us at www.jellyfish.com. Thanks and see you on the next episode.